0: Welcome to The Herd, and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Guess who just realized he hadn't hit record, and we were well into this conversation. Dang! Dang! Well, I think that our guest today can verify that filter 3.0 works really well in terms of blocking the thought from coming out my mouth, because I thought some (laughs) words I didn't want to say. Um, Today's guest, who I'm very pleased has decided not only to join us, but to stick around after that, (laughs) Uh, Dr. Gregory Miller. Um, I am so sorry. No worries. (laughs) Uh, Well, if that's the worst thing I do this week, I guess it's going to be a good week. Um, So Greg Miller is the Global Chief Science Officer and Executive Vice President for Research, Regulatory, and Scientific Affairs for the Dairy Management uh, Incorporated and National Dairy Council. And in his free time, he's also an adjunct associate professor of the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition, University of Illinois. And he's the Nutritional Security Sector Lead for the Global Dairy Platform. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, again, please tell us how it was that you got into agriculture because you didn't co- you didn't grow up on the farm and you didn't marry into agriculture, right?
1: No, I, I grew up in the, the suburban area in uh, Michigan, a little town called Waterford, Michigan. Um, but I, you know, I did a lot of gardening. My my dad had a garden every year, and I and I worked with him in in that garden. Um, Uh, you know, I uh, got interested in nutrition because my mother was overweight and she spent her whole life dieting. And uh, I was a wrestler. And so I was watching my weight as well, um, because you always got to try to make your weight class. And um, because I was still young and growing, my mother, who was a nurse, tried to make sure that I was eating very healthily with, you know, the little bit that I was eating. Um, And um, that kind of got me started and interested. And then later on, I uh, became a cook. I started as a short order cook in a, a steak and egg joint, and then um, later on, I cooked in the dormitory where you have these giant steam kettles and big oars that you stir the the food in. And then um, finally, uh, an assistant chef in a really nice restaurant. and And so, um, I always been interested in food and how it impacts your health and and your weight. It was just something that I was always interested in. Um, and so, I ended up choosing uh, nutrition as a major at Michigan State University.
0: and But your your desired career path got interrupted, and as sometimes happens, we get directed to where we really wanted to be all along. We just didn't know about it.
1: Yeah, I, I originally wanted to be a heart surgeon. That was my goal, to get into medical school. I didn't make it into medical school, and... Uh, I just happened to be working in a lab part time for a a nutrition professor who was doing research studies with with animals, uh, feeding the animals and collecting data. And um, when she found out I didn't get into medical school, she said, hey, uh, you're a smart kid. Why don't you uh, go to Penn State and get an advanced degree in nutrition? Um, I thought, well, that's a good idea. So I I took the entrance exam and filled out the uh, application and she made a phone call, and off I went to to penn state and you're right um, it, it turns out to be a, a career that i love uh, it was um, it was great uh, to be in in the field of nutrition and doing the research and uh, i I really felt like uh, it turned out to be a really good thing for me
0: so from the time you graduated and then got into serving the dairy industry, How? What? what's the journey between graduation and, and that?
1: Um, when I graduated from uh, graduate school, I got a job with Kraft Foods, working in their nutrition department, in their R&D uh, group. Um, I, I was actually doing a little bit of um, uh, studies. I had um, rats and I was doing the effect of calcium on blood pressure I'd always been interested in mineral metabolism to some extent, and and certainly um, my graduate work was on um, the impact of low-level lead exposure and and nutrition, Um, and and I was looking at how exposure to levels of lead that were very low that didn't really alter gross behavior, how it affected your nutritional status, and how having uh, an altered nutritional status could affect your um, exposure to lead and, and and its effects on you and particularly in learning and behavior and and so I um, uh, kind of continued on more in the area of mineral metabolism and looking at dairy foods and calcium and blood pressure bone health um, and and got recruited into the uh, dairy industry after six years there
0: and I've been there ever since and so my interpretation of of what we had spoken about before about your work was it it seems that you found that animals that were not optimally nourished were more sensitive to an environmental pollutant like lead at low levels than animals that were optimally nourished is that correct that's correct.
1: Um, what you find is, is that if you have higher levels of calcium and, and iron and magnesium in your diet, less lead gets absorbed into the body, less of it gets into the tissues where it has its impact in either disrupting biochemical fush- functions or, or has other impacts. Um, so these animals um, exposed to even low levels of lead had ultra B learning behavior. They, they still had normal gross behavior, but they had um, learning um, impairment. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, and, and then we've, we've also brushed past stunting in humans, which also impacts cognitive development. And, and so optimal nutrition is necessary for proper development and function. But then we also have this reality that without that, we don't have a properly functioning immune system. And so, and, and that could be infectious agents or environmental agents that would harm the individual.
1: Absolutely yeah. They're, they're sitting developmental periods where that adequate and good nutrition is really critically important in, in setting them up for, for long-term life. Um, kids who are stunted, they, they have lower work performance later on, they have lower life opportunities. Um, so getting adequate nutrition during that early development is, is critically important. And certainly nutrient-rich animal source foods play a critical role because of their high nutrient density. And their bioavailability, and that's important with young kids who can't eat a large volume of food. They need smaller portions, and they need nutrient-rich portions to ensure that they're getting nutritional adequacy.
0: Mm-hmm. And the, and it's not just at the early stage of life. We're now understanding the need for a higher quality diet in seniors. Like myself, um, that our, our needs are not the same as they were when we were middle age, and with a growingly aging population globally, that will affect all of the forecasts for food needs and um, the 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 challenge of meeting those needs as we go through the next few decades. A- absolutely, um, and. Uh, we made the point earlier that um, in agricultural, animal agriculture, we understand that it begins with proper nutrition for the animal. That the, the things that we have available to us in the way of antibiotics or other veterinary pharmaceuticals aren't to make up for the lack of nutrition.
1: Absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of interesting. I think we know how to feed animals better than we know how to feed humans. Um, each, I know on our dairy farms, our farmers all have personal nutritionists for their animals to ensure that they're, they're fed appropriately. But again, that enhances the efficiency and, and is good for the bottom line as
0: well too. But it's, it's, it's interesting how they all have their own personal nutritionists for their cows. And, and I, tr- I try to tell people, you know, the consulting veterinarians and nutritionists get fired every single day um, when the results of their prediction, their guidance don't match up with performance. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And and it's not a winning strategy for them to then blame the cow on their way out the door. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, a lot of this is still an art that has to be said. But when you're measuring output twice a day at least on a dairy farm, then you're evaluating the new nutritional program in a far more objective way than the majority of human nutrition work has ever even approached, as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, well, it's much easier to study animal nutrition because animals do what you want them to do. They eat what you give them and they eat it in the amounts that you give them. And um, they can't um, not. But the problem we have with, with human nutrition is that people don't always eat what you tell them to eat. They are not very good at staying with a, a, a same dietary pattern over time. And of course, their food supply changes as well over the seasons. And so um, a lot of the research methodology that we have in human nutrition is please tell us what you remember about what you ate. And, and so unfortunately um, the data is not really, really great.
0: And yeah. yeah. We learned a long time ago that cows lie. That's why we don't use the food frequency questionnaires yeah. in dairy <laughs> nutrition. Um, you know, what'd you eat yesterday? Hey, what did you eat today? Hey. Um, so just, uh, and but that that points out something else that we spoke briefly about earlier, and that is the variability of some of these dietary components in dairy rations. And so a lot of expense, nah, I, don't, I don't know, effort is made, um, is put forward to evaluate the nutrient status of dietary components ongoing throughout the the, the cycle of, of feeding uh, animals on on modern dairy farms, testing each lot of hay and other nutri- uh, ration components.
1: Yeah. I, well, as you've, you've said earlier, it's very, very important because, again, with plants, there's high variability in, in the level of nutrients that are found in different plants depending on Um, what soil they're grown on, how they've been watered with the climate and um, has been over the season. So you get high variability in in, in plants, not so much in, in animal source foods, because those animals are doing the work for us. They're taking these foods that we can't consume um, and digesting them and turning them into high quality nutrient rich foods that we can high quality, good protein. Um, And so that's really a great value of, of what what
0: animals can do for us and and it it extends well beyond protein and and the yeah. amino acid composition and profiles it 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 includes more available mineral forms. It includes vitamins. It includes, uh, I would argue, that animal s- source fats have been demonized unfairly um, since the mid-70s at least. Um, and, and more current work is reinforcing that idea that dairy, the, the, the naturally occurring fats that come from dairy products are in no way a risk for heart disease.
1: Yeah, there's been, been numerous studies that have been published, and, and even over the last decade, these meta-analyses, which essentially take all the different individual studies and put it together as if, as if it was one big, large study, um, which gives you a lot of power in, in your statistics and your analysis. And they show that dairy is either neutral or positive in terms of of heart disease in terms of reducing your risk of cardiovascular disease. And and the the data is quite strong. And they're now beginning to recognize that, well, milk fat is a very complicated um, um, piece of of dairy products. There's over 400 different fatty acids that are found in milk fat. Um, Some of them have biological activity like conjugated linoleic acid, um, which has been shown to have anti-cancer properties um, and may help with body composition in terms of reducing body fat and enhancing lean mass. Um, we also understand that um, it's, it's more complicated than just saying this fat or that fat. It's the food matrix that it comes in as well, too. It's, it's the way it's built as a food. Um, the structures, the other components within it, the calcium, the phosphorus, the vitamins, all can impact how that food impacts your body and your health. And so um, we've got to take into account food matrix now. It's a, it's a key component as well, too. But certainly the, the data is pretty clear that um, milk fat is, is, is not the villain that we once thought it was.
0: Um. So we, we met at a sustainable livestock conference, and we also are both on social media, so we brush up against each other yeah. frequently. But in terms of sustainability, um, too frequently it's my perception that popularly at least questions of sustainability in food systems or food production systems only focus on the aspect of environmental uh, factors and environmental impact. And they don't include the other components of sustainability that people who are working in that space do pay attention to.
1: Yeah, I, I, it, it can be a very frustrating um, discussion for me at, at sometimes times when, when we know that, of course, environment is in the center of the bullseye. Um, Environmental degradation and um, people then tend to focus on animals and then the recommendations tend to be, well, eat more plants, eat less animals, problem solved. But it's a, it's a much more complicated um, discussion that needs to take place because we need to talk about all the dimensions of sustainability, the social, the economic, as well as the environmental, and the nutrition and health parts of it as well too. So we we at the dairy industry kind of add that fourth dimension because we think it's important to separate that because that's what diet is all about, to deliver nutrition and health. Um, they don't often talk about it. You know, uh, across the globe, there are, a uh, A billion people who wake up every day and their livelihood is tied to the dairy sector. There are 600 million farms, dairy farms out there that people live on and and produce this nutrient rich affordable food for us. There's another 400 million people who are either bringing into the farm um, business or taking the product and processing and selling. so it's very important for livelihoods and culture, particularly in rural areas where a lot of the farming occurs. It's cultural, it's historic. Um, so it's it's very important to look at those full dimensions of, of sustainability and not just the environmental issues.
0: And, and even within the environmental issues, too frequently it's oversimplified. Yeah. And too focused, too narrowly focused, so that people will not recognize that the amount of arable land that's suitable for the production of human edible crops is a very limiting resource. And that having ruminant animal agriculture allows us to convert the resource that's grown on the non-arable land, as well as the arable land, into the highest quality foodstuffs that we have available to us and do it in a way that we do know better how to do it in a way that enhances or at least protects the environment in which that's taking place. Yeah, well,
1: the, the dairy sector across the globe has made strong commitments to, to their environmental progress. And uh, certainly in the U.S., they have committed to be net zero by 2050. I just I think a lot of people don't understand that um, animal agriculture really can be a part of the solution to some of the environmental issues that are out there. Certainly, the manure from animals is critically important for re-nourishing the soil in which the plants are grown. Um, organic farming requires manure. If not, they have to go get uh, artificially manufactured. Um, Um, fertilizer to to put onto the soil to enhance it. Um, We produce a lot of um, byproducts, if you will, through food production that can be fed to animals that humans can't consume. In fact, 98% of what we feed animals is non-human consumable. Uh, And they take this non-human consumable stuff like almond hulls or um, the orange peels that you don't like, or food that's spoiled that might be going into a landfill. Instead, they're giving it to these ruminant animals who can upcycle it into these nutrient dense um, foods, high quality protein that that we can consume. Um, And so animals are a very important part of that nutrient cycle that's occurring in farming. Um, and, And
0: they bring us this great tasting affordable food and, and the nutrients that we obtain from animal source foods, which obviously includes dairy. um, And I think dairy is one of the largest sectors of animal source food globally. um, That when people entertain the notion of eliminating animal source food, it's not a one-for-one one exchange in terms of a pound of, I'm using air quotes around protein, because it's really crude protein. Yeah. From you, you can't replace a pound of crude protein from animal source foods with a pound of crude protein from plant source foods. Now, if you, if you uh, want to get the same um,
1: protein quality that you get from animal source foods, you're going to have to consume at least 20 to 30 percent more of other um, um, plant type protein sources to get the same amount that you need. Because you've got to balance those amino acids uh, to get the essential amino acids that you require in your diet. And most plant source foods are short of at least one or two of those essential amino acids. So you have to... Um, combine and balance your protein sources from plant source foods because they don't
0: have all the essential amino acids. And, and that balancing is on a meal-by-meal meal basis, it's not over the course of a day or a couple days and the variability of the plant sources that you're using is unknown for most people. And so you may or may not be okay. And then we know that for most of these materials, they're going to be processed into something else. And that processing actually has been shown to decrease the digestibility of certain indispensable amino acids and so we're taking a low value and we're making it lower and so now we have to eat more and has to be typically comes with a lot of carbohydrate which has its own Um, potential for exacerbating insulin resistance, et cetera. Um, Maybe some other components in plants that interfere with mineral absorption or gut health. These things are known. They're they're not um, uh, wild speculation. These things do exist. And so people think that they can do this swap. And then, of course, there's those nutrients we can only get from animal source foods. Yeah. So and and you were saying earlier about uh, a study from FAO, I believe it was, about lifting people out of poverty with cows.
1: Yeah, there's two recent reports uh, that came out last year um, from FAO that, that looked at the dairy development and the impact of dairy development on low and middle income countries. And, and what these reports found was is that you know uh, you give some people some, some dairy cows, you can lift them out of poverty. And, and help build a local economy, that um, you can reduce malnutrition and stunting um, with that availability. And again, we milk cows three hundred and sixty five days a year, and they're not seasonal like crops. Um, they're they're really really important in, in terms of that gives them livelihood. That's that's income. And and that's like a kind of a bank account. Having that cow on your farm, um, that provides you some some value um, long term. So, yeah, really key reports. I, I get a little frustrated sometimes with the discussion around sustainable food systems becomes a, um, a binary discussion. Um, just just eat more plants, eat less animals. Problem solved. It, it's it's much more complicated in. And as, as you've kind of indicated earlier, there no one-size-fits-all healthy diet. Um, our, our needs change throughout our lifespan. And, and so that has to be um, considered. And certainly a, a recent study that was published last year looked at if we took dairy out of the diet uh, and tried to backfill those nutrients from other food sources, um, one, Americans would have to dramatically change their diet and eat a lot of foods that they don't regularly consume, which is not practical or realistic. And when you, when you um, constrain the study to, okay, foods that people will consume and typically consume, what you find then is that people will have to eat a large volume of food to replace those nutrients. And you won't probably be able to replace them all, particularly calcium and potassium. You're gonna have to eat a large amount of calories. By the way, we have a global obesity epidemic. And it's going to cost you a lot more money. And and that's been one of the concerns that's been raised about some of these um, planetary diets that have been raised out there is that they're not going to be affordable by most people. Um, They're not going to meet the the nutrient needs of different age segments or, or people who have special needs like the elderly, like growing children or pregnant women. Um, and so the idea that there's this one planetary diet that, that will work for everyone um, just isn't realistic. Um, they have to be contextual to each situation and um, they're going to need animal source foods or they're going to be inadequate in, in
0: certain nutrients that we require in our diet. Um, the first International Grasslands Congress that I got to go to, um, I listened to someone reporting on an effort in, Uh, Tanzania, and it was about some cooperative effort where most of the people owning dairy cows are women, and they might have one, two, three, maybe as many as five, you know. (laughs) um, But what this co-op was doing was giving them selling and buying power by sort of bringing together several of them and one of the first things that they decided to do was to provide milk to the locals to their schools. And it was in Ziploc bags with a straw and this allowed the provision of milk to the students and part of the report was the teachers reporting that there were behavioral and scholastic differences after some period of time of this within that little area. So it's not only, as you said, the the, the owner. And in many parts of the world, I've been told that, that livestock is one form of property that women can control in yes. societies. And so it's, it's, it's not... Merely, it would be enough if it were economic development, but it's a matter of social um, betterment as well, as well as childhood nutrition, as well as um, increasing the fertility of the systems that are producing human edible crops. Um, All of these aspects are inseparable from animal agriculture.
1: Yeah. And, and you're, you're talking about school milk. And of course, we know the value of school milk in terms of bringing good nutrition to kids. That's been studied before. But now one of the things that we've learned that is, you know, kids who are hungry have a hard time learning. And that's why, you know, school breakfast at school has become such an important aspect of, of, of school feeding, because we know if kids are well fed, then they're going to be better prepared to learn and, and um, they're going to perform better.
0: Yeah, it would be nice if we could improve the quality of the meals that are served in those situations. For exactly what you said earlier, I mean proper nutrition, learning proper nutrition, immune function, proper nutrition, just dealing with all the stress that far too many people are dealing with these days. Um, yeah, the, there's there's lots of examples of people you know taking pictures of what's being offered, and it's like. Yeah, we don't need that. We we need something. We could do something better. I think it would be my perspective. Um, yeah,
1: I, I you know, but I, I respect the school food service people who are out there working hard at their job, um, delivering that food to kids. And particularly during the pandemic, they've really stepped up and um, done a better job. They're they're making great strides, I think, in, in um, the meals that they're bringing into the school programs now. So I, I, I'll give a shout out to those guys. They're they're working hard.
0: Yep, fair enough. Um, so we, we spoke earlier about the, the progress that the U.S. dairy industry has made in terms of efficiency. One of my, one of my points that I make is that, one, we can't feed today's world without ruminant animal agriculture, let alone the world of 2050. And that in order to meet the goals of 2050, in order to improve humanity's diet, currently the majority of our calories are coming from plant source foods. And globally, the majority of our protein, quote unquote, supply is coming from plant source foods. In order to improve that, we have to improve the productivity and efficiency of our ruminant animal systems globally. Yes, but the work that you or the 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 markers that you mentioned earlier about the progress in terms of water use land use um for the dairy industry could you say those again yeah you
1: know i I've been so proud to work for the for the dairy sector i, I i've i've been with the dairy industry now for for twenty nine years um and and you know i I love working with dairy farmers they they're they're such good people and 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 they work so hard um, you know their their carbon footprint in the u s is only two percent um, and I, I it's under four percent globally and and farmers across the globe are committed to being environmental stewards but uh, a recent report that came out um, looked at um, producing a gallon of milk from 2007 to 2017. And what they found was is that we could produce a gallon of milk with 30% less water, 21% less land, and 19% smaller carbon footprint. Um, I mean, um, that's great. They they are really um, making good progress. And they've still committed to be um, carbon neutral by 2050. Um, So even though they're only a small um, footprint right now. They're still committed to doing more. They're making commitments around water in terms of conserving water usage, recycling better, nutrient management. Um, They're going to better manage nutrients so that the water quality is better. But um, our farmers see manure as kind of um, brown gold. Um, there's going to be an opportunity for them because it's hard to make a living as a dairy farmer. It's the old joke that the the farmer, dairy farmer who won a million dollar lottery, they asked him, well, what are you going to do with that money? He says, well, I'm going to keep farming until it runs out. Uh, But Hmm. um, you know, they're going to be able to make more money now from manure because they're using it now to, um, um, Uh, make organic fertilizer they're they're using it in anaerobic digesters to um, create natural gas some are using it to run their trucks some are using it to generate electricity for their farms and their communities they're composting the manure Um, they're looking at all the different things they can do on farm now to be again more efficient and productive but um, to make a better living for themselves as well too.
0: I even saw one operation. I don't know how scalable this would be, but they were making um, potting flats. Yeah, cow pots. Cow pots. That was it. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah. Um, one of the things I really respect about the people I've gotten to meet who are in agriculture is how inventive they are Yeah, and how imaginative they are at coming up with solutions. Um, and so again, as we were saying earlier, I'm very suspicious of top-down solutions, one size fits all. I'm far more optimistic about a bunch of well-nourished brains communicating amongst themselves to address problems and coming up with solutions that are appropriate to where they are. I think the latter is the way that will lead us forward and, and, the other is not likely to do that. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, but, but I think, you I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I just, I yeah, I think um, you know,
1: animal ag can really be a, a part of the solution, and and I'm, I'm really excited about what we can do, you yeah. know, across the globe, but particularly here in the U.S. And and I think what is interesting is in the U.S. we we have small farms, we have medium sized farms, and we have large farms. The the perception outside the U.S., I think, is that, you know, all animal agriculture in the U.S. is these large industrial farms that are inefficient and pollute the land. But the reality is, is that U.S. farmers, particularly these dairy farmers, are very, very efficient. They're the most efficient in the world. Um, An FAO report that came out last year looked at um, gas production from dairying across the globe from 2005 to 2015, and what they found was is that on an energy-intensive basis, um, across the globe, dairy has reduced its um, greenhouse gas footprint. Um, we're producing more carbon totally, but not as much as you would predict based on the amount of dairy that we're producing, because we're producing more over the years, and in particularly in the U.S., where not only did we reduce our efficiency, Amount of gas per gallon of milk we produce, but our total amount of greenhouse gases were reduced over that period as well too, and and it just shows you the efficiency of U.S. dairy farming, and and their ability to um, reduce their their footprint.
0: I, I also remember, um, and I think it was from that same meeting in in Kansas, yeah. um, or it may have been at another, but. Um, the example was apparently in Nepal, the dairy industry – oh, and that's something else. Dairy comes from more than boss genus. We, 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 get, we get dairy from sheep and goats and buffalo as well yeah. as um, – I mean, some cultures, it was mare's milk. Or camel's. Camels, Uh, so uh, many different examples. But in Nepal, apparently, it was buffalo was the the animal, and what they were saying was they leveraged what North American farmers typically practice regarding dry cow treatment from you know the end of lactation period, how to treat those animals, and and just came up with a standard. extension program and deployed that information into the dairymen in Nepal and took the rate of mastitis infection from like I don't, 70 plus percent to 15 percent yeah wow and so now you look at something like that and you realize okay what's what's the environmental footprint of reducing that turnover in animals What's the animal welfare impact of improving the health of those animals? What's the economic sustainability of improving the profitability for the farmer? Because you've accomplished that as well, as well as the impact on the the, the, the managers themselves, because that must be a huge psychological impact on losing that many animals out of your herd all the time so yeah and and that's leveraging technology that's accepted and in place it's not like we have to have a moonshot here to to come up with new technology it's it's appropriately deploying what's known into other parts of the world. And I did say appropriately, I'm not saying pick it up from Madison, Wisconsin and put it down in Addis Ababa or whatever. Clearly there are differences, but a, a lot of this, what you said about the dairy industry, not only reducing the amount of emissions per gallon, but reducing the total emissions across the board. What other industries have done that? Yeah. industries talk about this stuff, but they haven 't even begun to do the the quality of life cycle assessment that 's happened in the dairy and the beef industry yeah so it's the, the, like,
1: the, the u s dairy industry was the first agricultural industry to actually do their full life cycle analysis from going into farm inputs, all the way to consumer consumption and disposal. Uh, We know where our footprint is and where we need to act. And and our industry has made that commitment. And and I'm I'm really proud of our industry for that. And what we found was as well, is that whether you're a large farm or a small farm, Hmm. it's the on-farm decisions that you make, which make you um, more sustainable. Um, You know, how you treat your water, how you handle your manure, um, the lighting in your barn, um, the machinery that you're using. Um, it's, it's not um, a big versus small. It's, they all can have some impact and contribute together. But, but, but even interesting, last year, a study from University of Virginia Tech showed that if we took dairying out of the U.S. and just got rid of it because people say, oh, just eat plants. Well, you would only lower the greenhouse gas footprint by 0.7%. It's, it's a trivial amount, but what would happen to the food supply is that the nutritional makeup of the food supply would be dramatically impaired and have lower amounts of the essential nutrients that we require in our diet. So people who are making these um, planetary diet recommendations need to, I think, have a holistic approach in, in how they're doing this. There isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all. And we've got to think about the unintended consequences that occur from trying to make it a one-size-fits-all because there will be unintended consequences from doing that.
0: I think the word would be hubris to imagine that you could sit in Davos and come up with a reimagined food system when you've never done anything close to agriculture in your life. Um, yeah, maybe we'll take a pass on this one. Um, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, where does the majority of the nation's organic produce come from? That would be California. What do they use for their for fertilizer? Oh, that would be the dairy industry. Um, so you've gotten rid of the dairy industry. Where does the fertilizer come from? Your organic produce. Um, again, uh, these are things that a lot of people know but far more people have no connection to it. And so yeah. part of what we're trying to do is just get information out there. I think, and now this is my soapbox, so I'm sorry, but I think that the unsustainable burden that we're facing is the burden of metabolic illness globally. And I think that that's tied to, at its chief, you know, the 80% of that is insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia that's coming from getting too much energy from at least highly refined plant products right? sugars and starches um, and going on these recommended diets it's not going to address that and yet we're talking about the agricultural systems that provide the products that are shown to be part of the solution to that yeah you know the Well, that's certainly, again, I I would say right behind
1: environmental degradation, non-communicable diseases like um, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure are the second um, major piece of the bullseye that uh, people who talk about sustainable food systems are concerned about. They want to transform the food system to make sure that people are getting healthy, nutritious foods, again, to reduce these chronic diseases. Because, of course, the healthcare care cost um, to the burden that, that uh, results from these diseases is, is tremendous, particularly for low- and middle-income countries. Um, we saw a study published last year that looked at if we could just get people... To get adequate amounts of dairy in their diet, the three servings that's recommended each day as a part of the U.S. dietary guideline, which have been recommended as a part of the dietary guideline since 2005, uh, in terms of the number of servings of dairy that make up a healthy diet, um, we could reduce healthcare costs from NCDs by $12.5 billion a year that's that's huge healthcare savings that can occur from just getting people from the one and a half 1.6 servings they're consuming today up to the three servings that's recommended
0: in the dietary guidelines yeah. and again the 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 literature's there it's not well re- reported but the healthcare industry has an environmental footprint It also has a societal impact. It also has an economic impact, as you just mentioned. And again, this is a global issue, Um, uh, remarkably enough, that um, we, we, we have to confront certain stereotypes. And as you said, people will recommend a dietary approach because they think, they believe that this will lead to, and yet, there's no evidence there. On the other hand, there's this body of evidence that links all of these non-communicable diseases. And again, this is mine. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I'm happy to share my sources okay. um, that, that say that there is no non-communicable disease that isn't at least made worse by insulin resistance, if not arguably caused by insulin resistance. And so now we have sort of this, this thing that could unify our approach to what before has been, oh, you need to do this for that and you need to do that for this. And, you know, everything was kind of disjointed. And now there seems to be a coalescing, at least in some parts of research community and in clinical practice. And so I I just find that to be enormous good news. Yeah, well, I, I, again, that
1: that um, really applies to people who are accumulating a lot of body fat because the more body fat you get, the more likely you are to become insulin resistant. And so, certainly, there's a, a targeted population where um, carbohydrate restriction um, really would tend to be uh, really important for for their health. Um, certainly, uh, highly processed um, carbohydrates are are really Something that we want to reduce in in terms of our diet. Um, most of them are found in, in nutrient poor foods anyway, and so um, that's that's an
0: important point. Yeah, yeah we we could we could talk about whether the excess fat accumulation occurs as a result of insulin resistance or is driven by insulin resistance. But I've already taken up. All, all the time that you agreed to give me because of the massive uh, mistake I made. That, that's oh. the word I wanted to use, mistake. Thank you very much. Um, the, so you graduated with your doctorate at the same time I did, 86. You already talked about the changes that have occurred in that industry over that time, which I think is remarkable. Well, Um, I'm
1: just I'm just finally happy that, you know, we're we're starting to be um, less of a reductionist approach to nutrition where we focus on individual nutrients. And now we're focused more on dietary patterns. I think that's a really important change that's occurred over time. Mm -hmm. In, In fact, the last dietary go around, they look at dietary patterns more than they do individual nutrients, because I think if we get the dietary pattern right, the nutrient pieces will take care of themselves. Um, we, we've learned that with cholesterol, cholesterol is off the naughty nutrient list. We've learned that with total fat. In fact, one of the most recommended diets, the Mediterranean diet, is a high-fat diet, and we're recommending foods that um, like avocados, nuts and seeds, um, olive oil—all very high-fat foods as healthy foods. And so we're we're getting over the fat phobia, and we still have people who are are hanging on to to saturated fat as uh, the villain, but um, hopefully, um, as the data continues to grow, they'll they'll understand that it's it's not the big villain that everybody thought it was. Um, particularly when they consider food matrix like dairy foods, um, you know, we we still got sugar and sodium that are, are issues to be contended with. But I, again, I think if you get the dietary pattern right, um, that that'll take care of itself.
0: And I think also just acknowledging the role for, as you said, the matrix includes societal components and cultural components and family components. It's not, we don't just, you know, stop by the feeding station and wolf down a handful of protein and some fat and get the mineral mix. Hopefully we're sharing meals with one another and that has meaning and enjoyment and richness in life. Um, I've asked you a bunch of questions. I've kept you much longer than you agreed to. I appreciate that. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's only fair to open up to any questions that you might have for me before we close. No, I, I appreciate getting together and having having the time together and getting a chance to talk
1: about our industry and some of the great things um, it's doing. I'm so proud of the commitments that they've made and how hard they've worked at it and the progress that they've made. Um, I, I hope people like you will bring more balance into this dialogue around sustainable food systems for nutrition. It's a very important dialogue, but but again, we need a holistic approach. We need to think of all the dimensions of sustainability um, and, and have a balanced Look at it, and, and we need to monitor as changes occur what are the, the, the consequences of that to avoid any unintended consequences that, that could be bad. So, um, let's keep working at it and let's all continue to have a good civil dialogue and, and
0: work together. We, we can't manage what we don't measure, yeah. And, um, you know, in God we trust, all others must bring data. <laughs> and, um, but if, if, I uh, if there's one thing I would hope for the dairy producers and members of that industry, it's that they would all get better informed about metabolic health. Um, I think that, and and that's the same message I'm taking to all the agricultural sectors that I tie into because uh, I just I think that. Like I said, there's really good news. We can couple it with the good news that the industries have developed as a result of their efforts. And if we can figure out how to communicate that effectively to a wider audience, uh, I I think a lot of the issues that we're facing now will uh, be dealt with. Yep. Yep. Perfect. Greg, thank you so much. I'm glad to do it. it.
1: Yep. No problem at all. Good to talk to you.
0: Likewise. Bye-bye.
1: Yeah, I look forward to when we can see each other in person again. That'd be really nice.
0: Yes.